you would, uh, please grab and open a copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 16. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll, I'll read the passage uh, that, that, that I'll be preaching from this morning. God and Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that you speak uh, clearly, consistently, uh, and faithfully. Thank you that you've revealed all that you will for us to know about you and ourselves uh, for, for our salvation and for our uh, our fullness of life. Pray that you would um, open your word and the preaching of it this morning by your spirit. Change us by it um, and, and make us always attentive to hear what you have spoken to your people. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, uh, today uh, I am going to be preaching from uh, 1 Samuel 16. That's the whole chapter, so verses 1 through 24. If you would, follow along as I read it. These are the words of God. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me uh, him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city uh, came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And, Sam, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Samuel made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has cho not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he says, and he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the, Lord, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and the harm, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let, the, uh, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul uh, said by it to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine 
and a young goat and said, sent them by David, his son to Saul. And David uh, came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. So before we start looking at this passage in particular, I'd like to connect some dots uh, from uh, the passage that I uh, preached on last time I had the privilege of speaking until now. A lot has happened. Um, When I shared last, uh, we were looking at the the choosing of Saul. Saul was chosen by the elders of Israel uh, against uh, the the command of uh, Samuel and against the wisdom of God. The people of God demanded that Saul would be their king. And so Saul was chosen. Uh, And between that moment and this, Saul's reign went through uh, uh, some significant ups and downs, you might say. Saul started off relatively well, uh, but quickly, because of doubt, doubt both in himself and in God, uh, Saul started rebelling against God. He failed uh, in in some uh, significant ways. The two key ways uh, that Saul rebelled against God happened both in the context of war. Uh, First, Saul uh, conquered one of the foreign kings who he was defending his people Israel against. And this king and all of his spoil was meant to be dedicated, devoted to destruction, dedicated to the Lord. And Saul kept them all for himself, king and spoil. Uh, And later on, uh, Saul, uh, also preparing for battle, was, was meant to wait for Samuel to arrive to offer a sacrifice on behalf of Saul and his army. Uh, And uh, Saul, growing impatient, uh, offered the sacrifice himself unauthorized. Uh, And Samuel arrived, uh, condemned Saul for his rebellion, and uh, rejected, uh, speaking for God, he rejected Saul as king uh, for for those and the other errors that Saul committed. And it's in this passage that I read today uh, that... that, uh, that Israel finds themselves. Right after Saul has been rejected, uh, we, we hear this story. And, and, and I think maybe it could be just me, but I think it's kind of a funny story. From my perspective, at least, imagine that you are Jesse and you live in a country where uh, an, an old man once governed for decades. He ruled, he cared for the people. Uh, and, and though he no longer ruled, this man, Samuel, who speaks for God, has the authority to raise up kings and to throw them down. And he shows up uh, one day unannounced at your home and he says, gather up your sons. And you do. And he points at the youngest one and he's like, yeah, he's going to be king. And then he just walks away. He just leaves. He anoints him and he, no explanation, just goes home. How do you process an event like that? How do you think about what happened? Imagine going home and Jesse's wife is like, oh, how was the day? And he's like, yeah, day was good. Sheep are good. No wolves today. The wolves growing. David's going to be king. Yeah, a pretty regular good old day. Like It's such a strange story. And then there's the bit in the latter half where an evil spirit is sent to Saul from God. There's a lot of interesting, confusing, even bizarre things in this passage. And in this strange, maybe funny story, uh, we see God at work in his people. We see God providing his king. Uh, And in this story of God providing his king, I want us to focus on one main idea, and that is that I would like us to to learn to see how God sees. I want us to learn to see how God sees, and we'll look at four points uh, to work towards that goal. The first uh, is that I want us to see how man sees. How do we see naturally? And then look at this passage as it reveals how the Lord sees. 
And then third, how the Lord provides. And finally, how man provides. And all of these, again, bringing us to, to learn to see how God sees. In the first five verses, uh, which, which uh, uh, tell us uh, about Samuel hearing his new uh, instructions from the Lord, uh, we see Samuel, again, kind of picking up uh, the, the story with the same problem that we had in the last passage I preached on, the problem that God's people need God's king. Now, they had gotten a king, but he was not long after rejected, and so the problem persists. God's people need God's king. And we, we meet Samuel in this situation and he is grieving. It's the, one of the things we'll see in these first five verses is that when men see troubled times, they themselves are troubled. It is very natural for us when hardship arises to respond as Samuel and the elders of Israel do with grief and with fear. Samuel starts grieving and he's grieving over Saul. The Lord says, how long are you going to grieve over Saul because I've rejected him? And we don't know precisely what it is about God's rejection of Saul that causes Samuel to grieve. It, it could be uh, that Samuel is sorry to see the Lord's anointed fail. It could be that he is mourning because Israel once again finds themselves without a king. Or it could be because Samuel is mourning and he's grieving seeing his people endure the consequences of their own folly, right? Samuel for again decades cared for Israel like a father caring for his children. He tenderly watched over Israel and then watched them reject God, reject him, and choose a king, not according to God's wisdom, God's law, God's promises, but according to their own wisdom. And now they're dealing with the consequences of that, the hardship that they experienced under Saul's rule and now Saul himself being rejected. That can't be easy for Samuel, who cares so deeply for his people Israel. It can't be easy for him to see. And whatever the case may be, we don't know which of those it is. It could be all, it could be something else. Uh, we do know that, that Samuel is grieving over the rejection of Saul. And when uh, God sees Samuel in his grief, God comes with a, a solution. Now, there are many ways, again, to care for grieving people. Uh, sometimes it is right to sit with them quietly, as Job's friends do. Sometimes, depending on the nature of grief, it's right to, to tell someone, stand up, buck up, you can, you can get past this. Sometimes it's right to counsel them. Sometimes it's right to weep with them. Here, what we see uh, God doing for Samuel and his grief is God gives Samuel instructions. He tells him to do something. He tells him to do something in accordance with God's promise. God sees the problem. There's no king. And he says, Samuel, you're grieving the loss of a king. I have a new one for you. Go and get him. Uh, he's among the sons of Jesse. Go get the new king, my king. Um, and uh, we might think that when you're grieving and God himself speaks to you and says, this is the solution to your grief, there might be rejoicing. That seems like a pretty clear answer to prayer. Uh, and yet, Samuel does not respond to God's provision, God's promise, and God's answer to his grief with joy or thanksgiving at all. He responds with fear. How can I go? If Saul hears about this, he'll kill me. And, and that's, that's uh, when, as, a, as fear goes, that's a reasonable fear. We don't need to look far in scripture to see that kings in the ancient world don't deal too well with their power being threatened. It, it makes sense that Samuel would be afraid of Saul when he is going out to find Saul's replacement. Um, and, and so his fear is legitimate, but, but he's, his fear is of doing what God has commanded. He ought to just say, well, that's a scary thing, but you've said so, Lord, so I'll go. Uh, but God does not tell him, well, 
maybe you're afraid, go do it anyways. God provides for Samuel's fear. In the same way that God provides for Samuel's grief by giving him the king, uh, he provides for his fear by, by concealing uh, Samuel from Saul's, uh, Saul's suspicion. He says uh, that the fear is legitimate. Take a sacrifice with you. And this is not God being deceptive. God is concealing Samuel from suspicion uh, by, by adding something to Samuel's task. He's to go and make a sacrifice. He's not walking around deceiving Saul, hiding all that he's up to and offering a fake sacrifice. No, uh, God has given him a legitimate way uh, to conceal his activity from Saul without being deceptive. And so God, again, cares for his people. God cares for Samuel, who is afraid. And Samuel, uh, being cared for by God, uh, having his, his fears provided for, obediently goes. And when he arrives at Bethlehem, we see another human response. Again, we were even told less about this one. The elders of the city come out and they see Samuel and they tremble with fear. They tremble with fear at the sight of Samuel. We don't know why that is. It could be, again, remember, it was the elders of Israel who chose Saul as king. And now here comes Samuel, who has just rejected their chosen man. That's maybe a reason to tremble. He's, he's coming now to bring to you the consequences of your actions. It could be that they recognize the same thing that Samuel did, that Samuel's not exactly on good terms with Saul, and they're a little bit afraid of being associated with Samuel. Again, we're not really told why they're afraid, but we are told that their fear is answered, right? Uh, are, are, are you coming peaceably? And, and Samuel assures them, yes. I'm coming peaceably. I'm coming to sacrifice to the Lord. Come with me. Do this good thing with me. And in these first five verses, as we see Samuel grieve and fear and the elders of Bethlehem fear also, we see again the reality that when we are faced with hardship, with troubled times, uh, we respond tr uh, as becoming troubled ourselves, whether it be grief or fear or some other thing. Uh, we are very easily affected by the situations around us. It seems hard I'm going to grieve, I'm going to be afraid. That is how we naturally see. And, and we're gonna look now at verses six uh, through 10. And in, uh, in those verses, we're, we're going to see how God sees differently. But we already see in this first five verses, the reality of God seeing differently hinted at. Uh, when we see fear and troubled times, God does not see that. He actually sees the, the plan that he is authoring unfold. He sees his provision coming about. And, and that's hinted at, that's shown in verses one through five, but now it's seen in verses six through 10. Uh, we, we are told explicitly how the Lord sees differently than us. It's in this passage that Samuel, having gathered with the elders and taken them and Jesse and his sons to go and offer a sacrifice to God, uh, that Jesse's sons are paraded one after another in front of Samuel. And as the first one comes, so Samuel's meeting with Jesse and his sons, and the, the oldest, who is apparently some impressive man, is presented before Samuel. And Samuel goes, well, this has got to be the guy. Surely, if God said one of these men is going to be the king, this is definitely him. Uh, and God immediately says, no, 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 you don't get it still. Uh, don't look at his outward appearance. The Lord does not look at a man that way. The Lord looks at a man's heart. God sees differently than us. Uh, and we see that reality repeated again and again with the presentation of each one of Jesse's sons. As each one of David's older brothers is paraded in front of Samuel, Samuel thinks, looking at the outward appearance, surely this is the guy. And every time God says, no, I've rejected him. This is not the guy. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost as if 
God is saying to Samuel. How, how do you not get this yet? You're looking at the outward appearance and sure, all of these men look like they should be a good king, but so did Saul. You picked Saul for these reasons and look how he turned out. Why are you continuing to judge man uh, and, and look for solutions in a way that seems wise to mankind? Look at the man, how I look at them. Look to the heart. And that's what we're told again in, in, verse, uh, in verse seven. Uh, the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees differently. I think it's important uh, as we look at God seeing the man, man's heart and as he rejects each of David's brothers to, to make a quick note. And I think that is that as David's brothers are rejected, I don't think there's any reason to think from the text that they're rejected in any grander way other than being rejected as being the next king. God's rejection of people can have all sorts of different consequences in scripture. It can refer to all sorts of different things. But I think uh, there's no reason to think that David's brothers are all wicked men, uh, but merely that they are not the, the one whom God has chosen to be king. And they are rejected specifically in regard to that. Um, maybe that is a, a helpful aside to make. Whatever the case, after all of these brothers who look like they should be the king are presented in front of Samuel and Samuel is told by God, it's none of these. Samuel's like, well, surely there's got to be another brother. There's got to be another son. God promised that his king would be amongst the sons of Jesse and none of his sons are the guy. So he asked Jesse, do you have any other sons? And here we see again, the, 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 the way man sees contrasted with the way that God sees. Now, we're not exactly told how much Jesse and his sons knew about what was going on. It doesn't say that they're told that Samuel's there looking for the next king, but surely if Samuel shows up and he wants to see all of your sons, something is going on. And whatever Jesse thought was going on, he didn't think it was worth bringing David along. Someone's gotta watch the sheep, leave the youngest to do it. Um, it whatever this important thing is, it, it can't involve David. David is overlooked uh, by, uh, by his father for this circumstance, for this little assembly with Samuel. And then after all the other brothers are rejected, it becomes clear that David ought not to have been overlooked. Uh, and so David is summoned and, and Samuel says, we're not even gonna eat. Remember, they're gathering for a sacrifice. We're not even gonna sit down and enjoy this sacrificial meal together until David arrives. And when David arrives, uh, we see how God provides. This is the, the, the third point that I wanna make. We see that the Lord provides. We've seen that man sees differently than the Lord and the Lord sees differently than man. And now I wanna show how God sees uh, and provides in accordance with what he sees. David arrives and we read the following. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. I think it's interesting that David's physical appearance is described just after we're told that it's not the physical appearance that we're supposed to look at. Um, there's a lot of uh, maybe observations to make there. Like it's, it's not like the Lord's anointed has to be this grotesque person uh, who is really unimpressive physically or whatever. Uh, God uh, does not ignore uh, uh, the external appearance, but it's not what matters. Uh, and David, this man who is uh, ruddy and has beautiful eyes and is handsome, is also the man who has the right heart. This is the man whom God has chosen because God sees in him that he is the right man for the job. God sees according to the heart and God provides according with what he sees. David has the right heart, which God sees and David is the right man to be king. There's an important clarification to make there. 
Because God is not a reactionary God. It's not as though God is looking high and low throughout the land of Israel and through all the sons of Judah and trying to find someone who just is the right guy. Man, I hope I can see the man with the right heart. That's not how David is found and that's not how God works. No, God does provide in accordance with what he sees and David is the right man because of his heart, not because he looks like the right man for the job. But David is the right one for the job. He's the right man and has the right heart because he is the one whom God has provided to be the right man. If we go all the way back to verse one in this chapter and we see that reality. David, or God sends out Samuel saying, I have provided for myself uh, one of the sons of Jesse to be my king. Yes, David has the right heart and God sees that, but David is the right man with the right heart because David is the one whom God has provided to be the king of Israel. God provides, and there's kind of a play on the word see here. God provides in accordance with what he sees. He sees David's heart. He also sees that his will will be done. He, he sees out all of his perfect plan. And in this passage, we see the way when God provides according to his plan, what all does his plan include? Well, again, first of all, it does include raising up a king who has a righteous heart. But it includes other things, other things that are very typical of the way that God works. David is the overlooked son. David is the one who is written off. He's left at home. He's the unexpected man. And he is the right man for the job. In the same way that God fathered his people, uh, in the geriatric couple of Abraham and Sarah, who by no means should be expecting children, God provides a king in the youngest overlooked son. The son with the right heart is also the unexpected son, and he is also the son who is promised. There are many ways that David both fulfills and establishes promises about God's king. He, unlike Saul, is a son of the tribe of Judah. There are promises in Genesis uh, and in Deuteronomy that tell us that the right king is from the tribe of Judah, not Benjamin like Saul. He's from Bethlehem. And we don't get the prophecy that the, the right king is from Bethlehem until the prophet Micah. But here that principle is established. Where does the right king come from? Well, according to God's promises, he comes from Bethlehem. David has the right heart. He's the unexpected man. And he's the man who God provides in accordance with his promises the lion of the tribe of Judah. God provides in accordance with what he sees, both in the man's heart and according to seeing out his will being done. And then in the last large chunk of this passage, we see uh, how man provides. Uh, this, uh, this is not a contrasting idea with God, but rather a kind of demonstration of, of God's provision. Ultimately, what this passage is about is, is David providing relief. And in David providing relief, we see that man provides or man ought to provide uh, by giving what God has given him to give to others. And in David's provision of relief for Saul's torment, uh, we, we, we see God's choice of David as a right and righteous man vindicated. David's character is demonstrated for us in this somewhat bizarre incident at the end of the passage. And there's a couple of details I want to kind of take out and look at individually to show the goodness of David's provision and, and how that serves God's plan uh, in this last section. Uh, at the end of David's anointing, uh, David has the spirit of God rush upon him. And, and then in the very next section, uh, we see that same spirit of the Lord depart from Saul. 
Now, similar to the, the way in which God has rejected David's brothers for a particular thing, uh, this arrival and departure of God's spirit, uh, I think, is, is a particular thing that happens in the Old Testament. We see that God uh, anoints men in the Old Testament for the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And very often in the Old Testament, we read that God's spirit rushes upon the men who have been anointed for these roles to enable them to do them well. Uh, this is not a reference to, to God's spirit, uh, maybe identical or similar to that of uh, Pentecost or God's spirit indwelling each of us. Uh, this is reference to God's spirit enabling his, the man who is king to be his king well. And, and this demonstrates with certainty uh, that David is the true king, God's king, who's been enabled by God's spirit uh, to rule over Israel and that Saul is not. Saul has been rejected by God as king and he's no longer been enabled by God's spirit to rule Israel. The interesting thing happens after the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. We read that after that happens, a harmful spirit, actually in Hebrew, the word is an evil spirit, uh, comes to torment Saul. That's the first detail that I want to, strange incident that I want to look at. And then I want to look at the idea that the way that Saul is relieved is by the playing of music. I think that's a fascinating way that God provides relief. So first, that, that harmful or evil spirit. Um, I, I actually don't think that translating it harmful or evil helps us make any more sense of the passage. It doesn't put us at any more ease. Because either way, what we've just read about is that some kind of spirit has been sent by God to torment a man. That sounds quite troubling. That sounds not right. That doesn't sound like a thing that a good, loving God would do. Someone who is gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, sends a torment, a spirit to torment a man? That doesn't sound right. That, that puts us on edge, I believe. And yet, what, what is actually happening there is not something that should concern us or bother us or cause us to fear. It should be a comfort to us. Because what we see demonstrated in this reality, that this harmful spirit, this tormenting spirit who bothers Saul, uh, who is, by all reasoning and all accounts, God's just punishment of Saul's rebellion against him. We're reminded of the reality that, that the devil and his minions are not equal opposite powers opposing God uh, and, and violently working against his will. No, the, the devil and his demons, they are like dogs on a chain. And that chain is held by God and they cannot act, they cannot do anything, they cannot harm apart from the goodwill of a loving and kind God. Just like the accuser in Job needs God's permission to torment Job, so also this harmful spirit can't act against Saul without God's say so. And, and in that we are reminded that God who is good is not just sovereign over the good things, uh, but his good and perfect will oversees all that happens, even those things that are hard, even those things uh, that are the work of evil spirits. And with that reminder, I think we should be encouraged. Again, when we face hardship, when we face difficulty, when we face torment of various kinds, we should remember that it is not outside of God's good will. We should remember the promise of Paul that God works all things for good for those who love him. And as Paul and James tell us, we should rejoice in hardship and suffering uh, for the way that God works in our lives through those hardships, through those sufferings. These are not things that happen uh, outside of God's control. And that is good news. That is good news. The next idea is that, that yes, Saul's being tormented. And, and, and his assistants or servants, they come up with a, a rather bizarre solution. 
you're being tormented by an evil spirit. Find some guy to play you some nice music. That, I, I, there's, what, what is that? That I think is kind of strange. Um, and, and there's several ways that we might look at that. Uh, the first is, is perhaps there is some mystical or power to the particular music of David. Um, I'm not sure that that's the case. Maybe there's the psychological reality. I, I'm sure that many of us, when we are sad or frustrated or bothered, find relief in listening to good music or listening to maybe our favorite song. But I think there's more than the psychological benefits of music being demonstrated here. If I can go on a brief tangent, there's something that philosophers, theologians refer to as the three transcendentals. These are truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, truth, goodness, and beauty, these objective things, these good things uh, are transcendental. They rise above, they are outside of us. Uh, and, and they are referred to that ultimately because truth, goodness, and beauty proclaim the true, good, and beautiful God. By their very nature, truth, goodness, and beauty uh, make known the reality that there is a good God who made the world and exists and rules over it. And when I read this passage and I hear about beautiful music chasing away an evil spirit, I can't help but be reminded of the New Testament uh, where we are told in the Gospel of John uh, that darkness cannot comprehend or overcome the light, uh, that evil cannot exist where goodness is. Goodness chases away evil in the same way that light chases away darkness. In the same way that when you turn the lights on in a dark room, uh, that darkness cannot persist. Light chases it out. They cannot be in the same place. And it seems here that beauty, an objective thing that points to the reality, that, that beauty by its very nature proclaims the existence of God, chases away this evil being who cannot exist uh, where beauty is. And I'm not saying that if you are sad or experiencing hardship, all you have to do is go look at a nice painting or listen to some classical music. It's not some magical solution. But I think that there is, as we're told here in the New Testament, when we're told to meditate on whatever is good and true, I think there is power to do that which is good, true, and beautiful. And we see that at play here. The beauty of David's music chases away this evil spirit. And I think besides uh, being a good demonstration of God's provision, it's also a challenge to us, maybe even more of a tangent, um, a challenge to us in, in the things that we watch and listen to, uh, the things that we read. Far too often we are, when we choose a book or a show or a movie or listen to music, uh, our, our only standard is, well, as long as it's not offensive or sinful, then it's a good thing to watch or to listen to. Um, think of, however, how good uh, we would benefit, how much we would benefit if instead of just trying to find songs that weren't sinful and shows that weren't offensive, uh, we looked to spend our time thinking on and, and, and listening to uh, art, music that was actually truly beautiful. If beauty can bring the kind of relief we see here, how good might we, uh, how, how much might the goodness of, uh, that we benefit from if we were to, to spend more time listening to, watching, reading, and the rest, art that is truly beautiful. I think that's an interesting challenge and maybe uh, uh, an interesting application from this passage. Whatever the case <laughs> may be in that provision of music that chases away this evil spirit, this evil spirit who has come from God, not as a violation of God's character, but as a demonstration of his sovereignty, we see man's provision. David provides for, for Saul's torment, for Saul's misery by playing good music for him. And it chases away his evil spirit. And in the service of David, uh, of, in David's service of Saul, we see David's character put on display. 
David, interestingly, has just been anointed king and the current king summons you. Doesn't tell you why he wants you there, tells you to come. Uh, that can't be encouraging. The, the kingmaker has just anointed you and the current king says, I wanna talk to you. That's the worst call to the principal's office that you can imagine. This, the, like David, but David goes faithfully and, and his father sends him and David goes and, and immediately wins the favor of the king not only wins the favor, but is promoted to armor bearer and wins his love uh, to the point that Saul requests that David be allowed to permanently stay in his service. David's faithfulness to trust in God's timing, which we'll see demonstrated throughout the rest of David's rise to the throne. David's tr patience to end endure the man who should by rights be his enemy uh, and serve him and provide for him and care for him demonstrates the heart that David has, the heart that God sees. Uh, that has, has led God to rise him up as the rightful king. When David provides in accordance with the gifts that he's been given by God, he demonstrates to us the character that he has. And he shows us that when God has said, this is my man, God was right to do so. We who quickly look to the outward appearance of man, who look to our own wise solutions, are reminded that God knows better than we do. Because the man that we would have left at home uh, is chosen by God and shows himself to be the right kind of man. Uh, David demonstrates his character and in so he vindicates God cho God's choice in him as king. To conclude, let me tie some loose threads together. We, we've looked at how man with hardship uh, and troubled times turns and is troubled himself. He, he worries, he fears, he grieves. But God in those moments does not see the things that trouble man. He sees his provision, his plan unfolding through time. And God, uh, when he is raising up and offering and providing his solutions, he, he does so in men and in, uh, in people, um, not according to the wisdom of man, uh, but according to, the, to what he sees, him both seeing uh, the heart and him also seeing that his will will be done. And when he, uh, in this passage, raises up the man that he sees to be the right man for the job, he demonstrates that he is right in choosing David by showing us the kind of man that David is and the kind of king that Israel needs, a faithful, obedient king who serves and loves and is loved. And in that, I think we have the lesson uh, and the challenge to us that we are to trust in the king that God provides. We are to see in the way that David, or that God sees when he sees and raises up David to the throne. Um, we, we should learn to look for God's provision by seeing in this passage how it is that God sees differently than us. Um, and we should learn from the Pharisees. I, it seems like a bizarre thing to bring in this late in a sermon and a message from the Old Testament where they're nowhere to be found. But perhaps if the Pharisees who knew the law so well remembered the way that God provides, remembered that God chose David who was rejected. God chose David who did not look like the kind of king Israel expected. They would remember that God provides not according to how man sees, but how God sees. And perhaps if they would have been looking for the Messiah that God promised and not the Messiah that man was looking for, perhaps the scribes, the Pharisees and the others would not have sought to crucify the Lord of glory. And we should learn from their lesson. In troubled times and hard moments of our lives, we should not fear or grieve like it is so easy for us to do. We should not see torment as something that is outside of God's will, but we should trust that in torment and hardship and, and times that would have us grieve and fear that God's plan is unfolding and we should look for his solution, not look to man, not look to the wisdom of the age, 
but look to see how God is providing salvation and life for us in his king. See how God sees his plan unfold and raises up his king, not just David, but Christ, our savior. We should see Jesus as he truly is, not how man likes to see him as a wise teacher or a good moral example, but rather as the true savior provided by God, the king raised up over God's people, the true root of the stump of Jesse, the true line of the tribe of Judah, the true king from Bethlehem, the true salvation of God, the one who truly endured God-ordained torment on the cross, and the truly beautiful one who casts out evil. When we see that God challenges how we see in this passage, we are reminded that we need to look at the world, look at our lives, look at his king in the way that he would have us do so, and not grieve, not fear, but trust in the king that God provides. Let's pray. God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have provided your king for your people. Not only did you provide David for Israel in the Old Testament, but you also provided for us and for all of the world, your son, who came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. The true king who is uh, the true son of David. Pray that we would look to him. Pray that in our hardships, in our troubled times, in the torments that we face, we would not easily fall into grief or fear, but we would look for your plan unfolding and trust in the king who you have raised up, who cares for us, who has won us uh, to be your sons and daughters, co-heirs with him. He who conquers his and our enemies, let us trust in him. It's in his name that we pray, amen.